Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 54 through 59. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 872. I will be reading from the ESV, which is the translation that Pastor Wes will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Just a comment before um, we look at God's Word. Uh, several, you know, are viewing online and because of uh, health concerns have not been here in a while. But they're always asking about, um, you know, how things are going. And so I did want to report that by my quick and uh, not completely accurate uh, count, uh, did the best I could. I, I think I counted between 25 and 30 children, 10 or under, this morning. So uh, that is um, quite an encouragement. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, we uh, do thank you for uh, all the children that are here this morning. We thank you for every soul that you have brought here uh, under the uh, preaching of your holy word. And I do ask that you would um, open our ears and open our hearts to not only hear um, and receive your word, but open our wills that we might obey it as we trust in our Lord Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. All right, so we had... One of our catechism questions, or the Heidelberg Catechism question, dealt with the Eighth Commandment, talking about um, you shall not steal, and we talked about uh, one of you shall not rob. Um, So let me start with this. Let's say that you robbed a store, that you broke the Eighth Commandment, and you got uh, you were uh, uh, recorded on their security camera, and um, that you dropped your wallet with, that had your uh, ID on the floor in the middle of the store, and uh, your mother called and said, Little Johnny robbed the store last night. He brought home all this stuff. Come, she called the police, come and get him. He's still asleep in bed. In in other words, you are caught dead to rights. 
You have no recourse. What are you going to do? How are you going to get out of this? Might it surprise you that Jesus gives you a strategy for getting out of it? And we'll get there in due course. Uh, I want to make a statement about what this sermon is not about. Uh, During every turning point in history over the last 2,000 years, during every difficult period for Christians, um, there have always been a number of people that predict the near return of Jesus. And obviously, they were all wrong. Now, these are baffling times that we, that we are living in. Nothing makes sense. Uh, it appears our society is, is determined to eat itself, to devour itself. Uh, in this environment uh, that we find ourselves in, at this time in history, in our nation's, um, in our nation's history, is tempting to think, that, well, things are pretty bad, we must have end, or we must have reached the end of history. Therefore, uh, it's easy to conclude that Jesus is getting ready to return. We do want Jesus to return. We long for his coming. But there's nothing happening in, um, in our present moment. That's, that uh, su- that should, should suggest that we should put aside our normal Christian priorities and wait for Jesus. Um, in our passage, in verse 56, Jesus says, we need to know how to interpret the time. So th- I want you to understand that Jesus is not, know- is not telling us that we need to know when he is about to return. That's not what he means when he says we need to know how to interpret the time. Uh, In fact, many forget that Jesus himself said, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Maybe Jesus will come back before this service ends. Maybe he will come back tomorrow. Maybe he will come back a hundred years from now. Maybe even a thousand years or more. Jesus in this passage is not telling us how to know when he will come back. In fact, in support of this, there are two different words for time in the Greek language. There's chronos, uh, which is the word for chronological time. And then there is kairos, the word for the character of time. And Jesus here uh, in our passage uses the word kairos um, in in verse 56. And what he's doing is he is rebuking the people for not understanding the character of the time in which they were living. Now just a little background you will remember that Jesus is preaching a sermon that he started way back in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And who knows how long he preached, maybe an hour, maybe more. 
remember, it started in the morning. He went home for, uh, for lunch with some uh, teachers of the law. He came back. He began preaching again. So he's been going a while. But everyone there would remember what started uh, his sermon. There was a dispute because he had uh, healed this poor soul who had been demon-possessed. And some of the, the teachers of the law said, you did it by the hand of Satan. You're nothing but an agent of Satan. And then other people said, hey, I want you to do some more miracles so that we can test and see if you really are who you say uh, you are. And basically, had Jesus done a thousand more miracles, it would not have convinced them. And so this is the issue uh, that is driving Jesus' remarks as we come to the end of chapter 12 and the end of this long sermon that uh, he had been preaching. Uh, Jesus is standing in their presence. He's casting out demons, and they cannot understand that the times in which the entire Old Testament was pointing was being fulfilled right in their midst. And the people back then, they were good at discerning the weather, and Jesus uses this to rebuke them. He says in verses 54 through 56, uh, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the, sun, when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not, or why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So if there was a strong breeze blowing from the west, that likely meant that there was a storm coming in from the Mediterranean Sea that was going to blow over the land of Palestine. And so they knew that. Just like we know if there's a strong wind blowing in from the Gulf of Mexico, there's probably some storms coming. And what was south of Israel or the land of Palestine. Well, there was the Arabian Desert. And so if a, a wind is blowing from the south coming up, it's blowing all that heat from the desert into, into the land. So they knew that it was going to very likely be hot. But forecasting the weather only helped them to thrive here in this life. Now, the Jewish uh, life of that time revolved around religious practices. But the people, disregarding the importance of the religion with which they were practicing, were only consumed and only concerned with this life. And Jesus is rebuking them here in this passage. They could read the weather but they could not read what God was doing right before their eyes. Therefore, Jesus called them hypocrites in verse 56. The Lord Jesus, standing right in their midst, talking to them. 
the Lord Jesus was morally perfect in every way. He had never sinned. He loved people perfectly. He never was driven by self-centeredness. In other words, he was so unique just in the way he carried himself that the people had to see that he was different, but they could not see it. His preaching was with a power that was unequaled, even unheard of, uh, when compared with the great prophets of Israel. And his miracles were not done in obscurity. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, had heard him preach, had watched him heal the sick by this point in his public ministry. His messianic identity, in other words, was on full display for all to see. But the crowds, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they were blind to it all. What if Jesus were to stand here this morning and evaluate our spiritual, uh, our spiritual perception of the character of our times? How good is your spiritual discernment? How accurate is your understanding of our present time? You know, sadly, many church-going people in our nation are not fully aware of their standing with God, much less what God is doing spiritually in our midst. You know, there is no greater issue in your life than your relationship with God. Uh, it astonishes me that so many leave this issue unresolved. And even people who come to church week in and week out find it unimportant to have a right relationship with their God who created them. It's astounding. If you do not know the state of your own soul, it is therefore impossible that you could accurately discern the character of this present time. And going in hand in hand uh, with being unsure of your relationship with God, many don't know uh, how God saves us beyond um, some general idea that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And um, the intellectual lack of interest in these most important of matters. What did Jesus really do on the cross for me? How does Jesus, uh, how does he really save me from my sins? What does it mean to be regenerated? What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to have eternal life? And there's a, a lack of, of interest, even a lack of curiosity among so many uh, people who call themselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, many professing Christians are unmotivated, not motivated at all to read their Bibles on a daily basis. You know, I know in the moment especially with our daily, our busy daily lives. We put spiritual matters on the, on the to-do list, and they never seem to get done. 
But I would ask you, I would ask you to consider how Jesus addresses such religious people who lack spiritual discernment. In verse 56, he calls them hypocrites. As we look closely at verses 54 through 56, it's apparent that Jesus is admonishing the people uh, not for not understanding something, but rather for being so worldly-minded that they cannot have any spiritual discernment. Um, They're not sufficiently concerned about spiritual matters because they are so concerned about things here in this life, like predicting the weather. You know, all of us, I would imagine, know what the weather's going to be like in the next 12 hours. We have a whole channel on on uh, cable TV devoted, you know, to the weather. If you're a Spectrum subscriber, you get weather on the nines. Uh, if you listen to the radio, you, you get the forecast on, at the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour. And if there's a hurricane coming near Tampa Bay, I know that several of you in the congregation are glued to Mike's weather page on the Internet. And we also, if you're a sports fan, you know what's happening in the sports world. You know, we have the, uh, the March Madness tournament going on. You know whether your team has won or whether they have lost. You've got your little bracket. You check it a couple of times a day to see how things are going. We have such interest in, in, in these things pertaining to this life. And Jesus says, how is your spiritual interest? Do you have enough interest in the things of God that you are seeking out what God is doing? Are you to seek out what God is doing in this world that you might live obediently to Him? Or that you might help others repent of their sins and come to the Lord Jesus? You know, many know about, in, in, uh, about uh, the stock market, how it's doing, or the political back and forth each day. You know, we follow that like, a, like we follow sporting events. Many know about all these things that I've mentioned and know about these things in detail, but are incurious or unmotivated about spiritual matters. What does that say about us? We know in verse 56 uh, how Jesus evaluates us. If this is you, Jesus is admonishing you as well as the people of his day. So then the question is, what is the character of our time? Well, we live between the resurrection of Christ and his uh, second return. Uh, We... We could come, or he could come at any moment. Uh, The only thing we know about his coming is that it will be a surprise. It will be at a day and an hour when no one knows. It will catch people unaware. Therefore, Jesus tells us many times, and the uh, Peter, uh, Paul as well, tell us many times, we must be ready. Secondly, 
um, in regard to the character of our time. Uh, I don't think I would have much disagreement in saying that we live in a very vulgar and perverted time. What is good is now uh, commonly called evil. And what is evil is often called good. Somewhere, um, or someone I read this week said that there is a gale of sleaze that is blowing through our culture. For us to simply distinguish from uh, right from wrong will open us to the charge of being judgmental or being bigoted. Or if we dare to distinguish godly righteousness from wickedness, you know, it might get us banned or canceled. How did we arrive at such a spot in our nation? How did we arrive here at this ugly time in our society? Well, without going into much detail, um, I wanted to give just a a short philosophy lesson. Uh, There was a guy named Immanuel Kant that lived in the 1700s, and he wanted to address the the, uh, skepticism that was reigning in Europe Uh, as a result of the 17th century Enlightenment. Uh, They began to doubt whether anyone can know anything. And so he posited that we can know the facts of the world by interpreting them. Uh, Nothing, he said, nothing has meaning until we, as the interpreter, give it meaning. Uh, We give truth to the world that we experience. In other words, he said, we are truth givers. Uh, For example, the question, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it fall, does it make a sound? Immanuel Kant would say no, Um, because we give truth to reality. The upshot of his philosophy is that each person has his or her own truth according to the way we perceive reality. And this, you've probably guessed, is relativism. Um, Everyone has their own truth. You know, now, here over the last couple of years, people are willing to say, uh, I have my own truth and you must submit to my truth. And what do we do with that? It's easily knocked down. You know, a, uh, a middle school student could show the, the inconsistencies with these positions. The whole premise of Immanuel Kant's philosophy is absurd. It's, it's inane. Uh, but this is the society that we live in. Let me give him one example of how widespread this thinking has become, and then I'm going to move on uh, from talking about Immanuel Kant. Uh, In the scientific world, the scientists talk about consensus, and all the scientists get together, and they see an unproven theory, and they they say, this is truth. It has the the, the consent of the scientific society. And even though it has never been proven, it is now viewed as truth 
and no one can speak against it. In fact, very good scientists are regularly um, losing their jobs because they say, no, it's not uh, a proven fact. And this is more than just evolution. There's a whole range of things where this idea of consensus, and it's just a sophisticated form of relativity, relativism. And uh, surprise, surprise, typically um, these things align with some sort of political ideology or, or, or something like that. Without um, deconstructing Kantian epistemology, the reason why his philosophy has gained such a foothold in Western society is basically a general lack of the human condition. Uh, The Bible in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all else, above all things, and it's beyond cure. So, in Western society, we have given the human heart the place of God to interpret reality. The individual's sinful, deceitful, God-hating, self-absorbed heart is now the interpretive guide by which we determine truth in our society. People are going to, ter- to determine their truth according to their own selfish desires. Uh, someone said that we have widespread hedonism that is built on the shifting foundation of relativism. <laughs> is that a recipe for disaster? In other words, we have a society-wide rebellion against God. Man is telling God that each person has the right to determine their own truth based on their own selfish desires. What is this? This is the sin of the Garden of Eden, an attempt to replace God as the truth giver. If that is the character of our time then what can we expect our future to be? I don't think it's hard to look into the future and determine what is coming. What is coming is judgment and disaster and ruin. I hate to be gloomy, but there's no other way around it. God is not sitting on the sidelines. God is involved in our world. God judges people. It was I didn't tell Sylvester to read uh, and pray through Psalm 75, but I thought how appropriate. God is a is a just God, and He will bring His hot and holy justice on mankind and on societies that try to uh, displace Him. From their lives. You know, I believe that God has given us over uh, to our desires as judgment aimed at our repentance. And either we will repent and be broken by the Lord Jesus Christ, 
um, or he will break us, and it won't be pretty. If we will not repent, what can we expect but only more judgment, disaster, and ruin? This applies to individuals as well as to society. History has taught us that even the greatest of societies are bound to destruction. And the Bible teaches us that without fleeing to Christ, every individual is bound to eternal judgment. So, what should we do? Let me bring us around to that question. You've been caught... Um, the, the, the police have your, your, you videoed on the surveillance tape. They found your, your driver's license in the floor of the place that you broke into. They came, because your mom called, they came and arrested you, take, took you out of the bed, found everything that was reported stolen there in your room. You're caught. You're dead to rights. What do you do? Well, listen to what the Lord Jesus tells us to do in verses 57 through 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you, go with your, um, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle uh, with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This little story that Jesus tells assumes that you are guilty. Uh, your accuser has you dead to rights. If you were innocent in this little story, you would not be Uh, encouraged to settle out of court before you get to the judge because in verse 59, because you are guilty, you are going to be declared guilty. You are going to be thrown in jail and you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is Jesus' way of saying to those people who are blind to his identity, who cannot understand the times because they are so set on on, uh, uh, seeking after things of this world that they cannot see what God is doing, that he has sent his Messiah right into their midst, that even the miracles that he's doing, they are accusing him of Satan because Jesus might impinge on their lifestyle, on their way of living. He might displace some of these Pharisees that liked being uh, in first in line and recognized. You know, if Jesus is the Messiah, well, what does that mean for the Pharisees? Well, they've got to get behind him. And they didn't want to do it. And so they are guilty. But Jesus is saying, um, you're heading for judgment and there is no way out. Just think. Let's say that you, the, the police have arrested you. And they've not only arrested you for robbery. They found your DNA and realized that you have murdered someone. They've got you. How are you going to get out of it? You know, a person without Christ is like a, one of those people that are thrown in jail in the Old West for rustling and for, for uh, murdering um, 
the, the homestead owner. And so you've, you're in jail. The judge has, has uh, convicted you. You're guilty. And you have to spend your last night in jail listening to them build the gallows uh, that you're going to be uh, strung up upon the next morning. And uh, as daylight begins to break, you hear them testing out the ropes to make sure that the ropes aren't going to break, that the ropes are going to do the job. So they have these, these uh, sandbags tied up and they pull the lever and you can hear it, you know, crush, you know, every time it, it, it falls and they test it. And you know that before the clock hits the noon hour, that you are going to be hanging at the end of that rope. There's no way out. The Bible says that you are guilty by virtue of being a child of Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Um, All of us are not just imperfect. We are sinners who have offended a holy God. If you doubt that about yourself, I'll give you a little assignment. Go home this afternoon. Read Romans chapters 1 through 3 and see what God's verdict is about all mankind, including every one of us seated here in this room, even the, the 20 to 30 children that are here um, worshiping with us. Back up to, to verses 57 through 59. Jesus says, in order to get out of it, you've got to, um, you've got to, to take care of matters before you get to judge. Let's say that you decide, you know what, I'm going to take my, my chances before the judge. You know what's happening, what's going to happen? He is going to declare you guilty. Let's say that... And this is what Jesus really means. Let's say you, you decide to take your chances here in this life. You know what? Maybe there really isn't a God. Maybe he's softer than the Bible really says he is. Maybe he'll let me off with a, a, a hand slap. Maybe I can live the whole rest of my life and pray a little prayer right before I die. And people take those chances. And I want to tell you, when you are standing before the judge, it is too late. You are separated, the Bible says in Matthew 25, separated from the sheep. You see a loved one up on the great day of judgment. And your loved one loved the Lord Jesus, trusted in him. You will be separated. The sheep on the right, the goats on the left, and you will be judged without mercy. And so Jesus is saying, with all urgency, don't go to the judge, go to the prosecutor first. Come on his terms, plead to the prosecutor for his mercy. Well, where do you go to visit the prosecutor? You know what? He set up shop a couple of thousand years ago on a little hill called Calvary. And the prosecutor came and did everything that, or, or underwent the punishment 
that you deserve the full punishment of everything you have ever done wrong in this life, every way that you have dishonored and disobeyed God. The Bible says um, God made him, Jesus, the prosecutor, we could say, to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. It's in Jesus Christ, and only in Jesus Christ can your sins be cast as far as the east is from the west. It's in Jesus Christ, and only in Jesus Christ can your sins be forgiven. Not only so, but on the cross, our Lord destroyed uh, the kingship of sin, and he purchased new hearts for all those who would be his people. If you are a thief, Jeremy kind of mentioned it, took a little bit of my thunder. When is a thief no longer a thief? It's when he becomes a generous person. Well, how does a thief become a generous person? You know, can you throw him in jail, nail down everything he could possibly steal? Does that change his heart? No. He's got to be a generous person. He's got to be regenerated. He's got to be transformed. And that's what the Lord Jesus provided for us on the cross. And when you come to him, he changes you. He makes you into a new creature in Christ. And not only so, because you're a new creature, he makes you you into your, your entire outlook of, on life, your entire uh, desires, your entire way of life changes. And so Jesus is urging us here in um, verse 58, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest you judge, drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, tell you, you will never, never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The jail here he is talking about is an eternal damnation. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus describes it. He says, The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out, his king, out of his kingdom all, that, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we are all headed toward. Frankly, that's what our society is headed toward as we wholesale reject our God. There will be a judgment day where all things will be set right. And so I want to urge you. I want to command you in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you are not right with God, Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that prosecutor who can, you can come to terms with him by what he has done on the cross. And when you stand before God, the Almighty Judge, 
you will stand justified. You will stand before him guiltless. You will stand before him without sins in your account, and you will stand before him as his own dearly loved child. Flee to the Lord Jesus. He's a good Savior. He's a perfect Savior. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation as we pray together. Oh, Lord God, I tremble for those to whom Jesus was preaching this message. Many of them have, well, all of them have long um, ago died. And those who died without the Lord Jesus knows what it means to be cast into hell, to be separated from God forever, to suffer for their sins until the last penny has been paid. And, O oh Lord, I pray that there would be none here in our congregation because I pray that all would flee to the Lord Jesus for mercy. We ask it in his name. Amen.